This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Good morning, everybody. How are you all well? I'm surprised. I mean, we've, we're sorry to start slightly late, but the rain has been plaguing us, obviously, in different ways. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Insights at Friends of Europe and the moderator for this um, uh, Climate Energy Summit, where we've built it as pathways are clear, but there are obstacles ahead. It sounds kind of tame, actually, um, in terms of the framing of it, because actually, I wanted to say that the sense of complacency or not actually getting a grip on the fact that we need to act really urgently is just being missed on so many levels. We've had a number of uh, reports um, in the past three years, in, if I refer to the past three years, which have indicated that we have a period of time in which to act um, and what we need to do is very clear. Yet, we find politics, as always, uh, the barrier for, for actually upscaling effort and momentum. It's interesting that, you know, those of you who read the, the, the report or saw the reportings um, in the press where you had the 11,000 um, um, scientists who were really very clear that uh, we're not good enough, fast enough, or actually moving in the right direction given where we've got to right now. And also, we know from the IPCC reports that um, the window of opportunity that we have is very, very limited. And I, I, I recall that you know, over, just over 18 months, two, two years ago, there was a very clear sense that we have almost like four to five years, but we've already eaten two years into that. And in the advent of a new EU mandate, um, I think all of us are hoping that Europe can um, up its game um, and do more and better. But let's see. One of the issues I think we have, as, I've, as we've always got the, uh, the same issue, is about politics. This agenda is fundamentally about supply and demand. We know that. But the issue that cuts across the supply and demand um, uh, equation is politics. And what we know from this earlier this year, that we saw how Germany aligned itself to the east in terms of reducing targets for Europe. Um, and we have a number of machinations that are taking place um, in the council around how we might tackle this issue. But what we do have is a new president, a woman president, thankfully, um, uh, that actually is saying that this is going to become the central part of her agenda, but we'll wait and see. But this day, what we have is, we have basically a conversation about, I, the way I describe it is ambition, transition, and money. Those are the three things we're going to be discussing in these sessions that we have. Uh, but in the first session uh, that, we, that we are going to start with this morning is really, um, as we've build it, I think we've got it somewhere that, you know, um, in with the old and out with the bold, if you like. And what we really want to discuss is uh, really getting a better sense of the context we find ourselves in, but to think about ambition differently and better. And we have a really interesting um, panel of speakers uh, here this morning. And I'm going to start off with um, Mark Fulton, who is the chair of the Research Council at Carbon Tracker. Mark, you've obviously listened to what I've just said, and my question to you is, are we running out of time, and what should we do? Which is a big question, obviously. Yes. Uh, it should be on. Hi. Yeah. Oh, so, I, if you don't mind, I'm going to have to read this. I should know it by heart. But I thought in a European audience, I might get away with a quote from one of France's great, great diplomats of the 19th century, de Talleyrand. The art of statesmanship is to foresee the inevitable and to expedite its occurrence. And that really is the essence of some of the work I've been doing recently on policy. It's inevitable there's more policy coming. We just need to get on and do it as fast as possible. Now, Mauro's going to say, gosh, I hear that every time. But unfortunately, it's sort of true. Um, so I would like to say just briefly, there are four ingredients to a climate transition. The first one is technology, that's the good one. It's getting cheaper, we've got the technologies at least to launch ourselves towards at least a two degree outcome. I think 1.5 is a lot harder. 
but we can get going. We do have the technology. It's getting cheaper. Consumer preferences need to change. Diet, it's one of the big ones. How can we get off beef? Uh, it's going to be difficult. Maybe the regulators will help us. I don't know. Climate finance is the one that I'm most uh, sort of connected with, which is a, I think has two aspects, climate finance. What I would call um, the direct financing. Where do we find the money to finance the transition? I've always said that's not as hard as people think. It's, just, it's simply risk and return. Uh, you know, as an ex-investment banker, I can tell you, if you've got a good risk profile and a good return, the money's going to flow big time. So it's about creating that risk and return profile, and again, policy can help very much with certainty in that. So then, in a sense, we get to the fourth ingredient of the transition, policy. Policy's role is to speed that up, accelerate it, push it, force it. I, I think like the oil companies will tell you, yeah, you know, the transition will happen eventually in, you know, 2100. You know, we'll get there in the end. Yeah, but the climate won't get there if we wait too long. And therefore, the key role of policy, as we all know, is to force, accelerate, and make that transition happen very much faster. So, I just want to plug a little project I've been involved in with the PRI, the Principles for Responsible Investment, and we call it the inevitable policy response. And that is about the fact that it is inevitable that we see tighter policies. But what isn't inevitable is the timing and, the, and what those policies are. That is still the ultimate debate. We've created what we actually call a forecast. We believe that by the 2025 ratchet, we will have seen very significant increases around the world to policy ambition. I'd love to say it was coming next year, and what I'd say is we need to get on with it now. That's the urgency. The faster we can do it, the more we can put down, the better. But I think we've all noticed who's the President of the United States, and therefore we're not exactly going to get the major breakthroughs this side of elections and so on, and therefore we've given our, we've given our forecast till the 2025 ratchet. We've then modelled all the results of that, and we think that you can actually push the, uh, the trajectory down towards the IEA's sustainable development scenario quite quickly uh, on a series of, I think, very straightforward policy levers. There's nothing, you know, astounding here. It's just increasing their ambition and the speed of them being implemented. In particular, I'll pick out the two obvious policy levers, carbon markets. We need more of those with higher prices in different parts of the world. And the second one is a very sweeping idea, but it's at the core of all really regulated policy. It's performance standards whether they be for coal pads, uh, for, for energy power stations, whether they be for um, uh, energy efficiency, you can apply for cars. If you want to regulate two degrees, you can regulate it. You just put in performance standards. Now, the issue is what happens if you try and do that? Why would they do that? Why can I think I can call on these policymakers to actually do that? Well, it's simply, it's not me, it's called young people and voters. I think we are truly on a new wave of a push from society itself. And this is the air cover or the reality that policymakers require and need. Now, we were joking last night, I'll channel my inner extinction rebellion in effect. Um, you know, this is coming. To be honest with you, the voters that don't particularly pay attention to climate change are dying rapidly, that's the demographic. And the voters that do care are getting bigger and bigger in the voting population. And that's why I think another five or six years of this, by the time we get to 2025, the pressure will have been inexorable. And I think that that's why the ratchet of that year will see increasing, and all, all the way into it from the 2023 stock take, we'll see a lot coming. So just in terms of Europe, all I'd say is that great leaders it's fantastic, but I, I just think, I hope you can ratchet your performance standards more aggressively. And I'm going to ask for one thing, I know you don't really want to do it, but I think as a signal it would be great to see Europe at some point ban coal-fired stations. Ban them. Now, why can it do that? Because it's going to happen anyway. I agree it's coming, but the signal would be very interesting. The politics of it would be highly complex. 
but it would be a very interesting signal. And just to say that Carbon Tracker, who I work with, recently put out an analysis of the European coal-fired uh, coal, uh, stations on an underlying basis. We think they're in losses. They're only getting through by hedging. That hedging will run out, and therefore, quite honestly, we don't know why anyone's bothering with these things. It'd be good to get out of them. So basically, we've got to get on with it. We've got to get on with it fast. We know that. We think we've got a time frame that is doable. But if we leave it too long, it's simply the overshoot gets so big that you wait for the word geoengineering and all that that entails and the risks in it. Thank you. Mark, thank you very much. Um, and it's good that you identified that actually um, the timing is obviously key, but clearly if we want to act, there are some obvious levers, as you point out, that we can, that we can make sense of and make use of. Uh, but again, it's about having the boldness and, I suppose, facing up to the fact that it's going to be potentially uh, politically um, uncomfortable or unpopular if you're going to create the standards that you're describing. But let's, you know, let's come to that and we'll have a conversation uh, um, in, in the round around that. But let's move to... So we clearly, you know, you're really clear that, you know, um, time is running out. And as I said, you know, I think that um, it's amazing that when you think about just this year alone, the overshoot day was, uh, you know, earlier. We have seen the temperatures that we have. And you think to yourself, my goodness, um, what, do, what, what does it take to actually get the political momentum to really ratchet up uh, a response? And I suppose there's a sense about human nature that we, we have to have the Titanic effect, i.e. something absolutely catastrophic to enable us to really be jolted into action. But I hope on this one um, we can be potentially optimistic. But let's turn to people. Um, we have Linda here, who is a uh, professor of uh, environmental psychology, um, and, and talking about people. I want to, wanted to kind of focus on people for a moment here, because we say so much about behavior change that's required. Um, and some others will say, you know, um, stupid, that's wrong, because it's industry, it's, it's the big, big polluters that are the issue. Are people the barrier, or is it the system? Uh, no, the system is a great barrier as well. People are important, but uh, it's generally misunderstood that people don't want to move. Because what we know from research is that many people care about the environment, they value the environment across the world, and they're motivated to act upon this, to protect the environment, even though it might be somewhat costly. And you can probably think about many examples of what you do for the environment, even if it's not the most convenient or profitable option. That's true for many people. And people do so because acting upon uh, the, doing something for the environment or protecting the interests of others makes us feel good. It's a meaningful contribution. So we're not only driven by doing pleasurable things, but also by doing meaningful things. And people across the world generally endorse these types of environmental values quite strongly. Second, many people acknowledge climate change is happening and that it's anthropogenic, that we are causing climate uh, change. When I ask uh, in, in different uh, audiences what percentage of the people you think deny that climate change is happening and caused by human behavior, many people come up with rather high percentages, like 20, 60 percent or so even. But what we saw from a recent European social survey, so European-wide representative samples, that only 2 percent of the population doesn't believe climate change is happening. So that's not the issue. Many people do so. Even among Trump supporters, so the climate skeptic leaders, the majority of these voters do believe climate change is happening and that it's caused by human behavior. So that's not the issue. So why are we still facing problems? Why is wide-scale accelerated action not happening? Well, I will point to two reasons now. Uh, the first one is that we generally underestimate the extent to which other people care about the environment. People in general do so, and that might inhibit climate action because they might think, yeah, my contribution is not very helpful because others won't do their bits. But it's also inhibiting uh, actions of industrial and political leaders because they might also think, oh, well, the people wouldn't support any change that I'm proposing because people don't care about the environment that much. They're mostly caring about their own interest. 
So it might inhibit their actions. And it's particularly because uh, we tend to motivate these types of actions by emphasizing that it's beneficial for people or that it's a nice thing to do in the idea that that would motivate people to adopt these behaviors. But it would be better to also emphasize the environmental benefits uh, associated with be uh, behavior because people are motivated by pro uh, to protect the environment, like I said before. And oftentimes I get the response like, yeah, but that's moralizing. Uh, you're telling people what to do. That's not the right thing. Uh, you should not be waggling with your finger. But this is not about that type of moralizing. It's about enabling people to act upon the things that they deem important. So the first barrier is that many people underestimate how much other people care and that might inhibit wide-scale actions. So it would be more important to demonstrate or to, uh, to clarify that many changes are rooted in these types of motivations. The second one, and then I'm coming back to your main question, systems matter. So in the current systems are uh, yeah, not always enabling climate actions. In many cases, it is really uncomfortable or really costly. If you would like to travel by uh, train to, for example, the south of Paris, uh, France, it's more expensive and time-consuming. Well, time-consuming, maybe not even that much, but far more ex expensive in many cases than taking a plane. So the incentives should be changed, systems should be changed. And that is something that industrial and political leaders can do. So leadership is needed. And of course, still, these changes need to be acceptable, so people come in again. But it's often misunderstood that it's only acceptable to people when it has very many, uh, many personal benefits and little cost. So protest against any type of action is often interpreted as like, oh, people don't want to uh, have some negative consequences for themselves. But that's mostly not the main barrier. What is really important is how cost and benefits are distributed so that not one group is much worse off than the other. And that's probably was a motivation for the Yellow Fest movement. That's also what you see now in the protests of Chile as the main factor. So the distribution of costs and benefits is really important. And next, it's important to uh, uh, procedural fairness, to listen to the concerns that the public has and to address these. So people might protest against a change or a policy, not because they are against any change, but against this particular change that you're proposing. And when you adapt it a little bit, they might like it. And so also participation of the public in, uh, in policy making processes would be important. And then last factor that's really important is trust, that people trust the actor who's implementing these changes. And so and leadership is needed and uh, there are some examples that when leadership is shown, when unpopular measures have been implemented, in the end, people liked it very much, much more than they anticipated beforehand. Linda, thank you very much. I mean, it's, it's both building on what both you and Mark have said, we, we conducted a survey of uh, citizens across Europe um, this year and um, only it was, it was concluded at the end of September. And we asked um, the, just under 13,000 citizens across Europe, what should be the top three priorities for the new EU mandate? We conducted a similar poll last year and um, basically environment shot to the top. It was number three last year and it went to number one this year. And what was fascinating about this, and this is what I find interesting about the um, generational issue was that um, across socioeconomic groups, age, region, rurality and city, it was across the piece. Um, everybody was saying environment should be the number one issue. And um, I think that kind of blows a hole in some of the myths about what's taking place. It's just some people are using their agency, as in young people, um, to um, hope, thankfully dramatize the issue. And I say that in the, in the most respectful way, because we need more drama um, in this if we're going to move in a certain direction. Um, but it's, the other point that I think it's interesting that you're making is that often we find that we lose a, a, a socioeconomic analysis of the impact of some of this. And I find that and we have, we've had this, those of you who've been coming to this summit before will know, we've had a number of people who've said actually, if the system 
is going to work, it needs to wire around people's needs as opposed to people working around the, about this, around the system. And actually, often you find that the poorest people um, in our populations have the hardest job in able to access sustainable, clean um, contexts, whether that's a solar panel, whether that's different forms of heating, or upgrading their, 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 their houses um, and making them better. But you know, that, those are lessons that we need to be thinking about. I just wanted to open it up very briefly, if I may, to any comments uh, from the audience before we move on to, because we've the last two contributors, we have the public sector in the shape of the European Commission and the private sector. So any particulars, right, the two gentlemen here. The mic's coming to you. Yeah. There we go. Please introduce yourself and say, and I, I just ask, my plea is, is that, you know, short and to the point. Right. Uh, Joe Leinen, former member of the parliament serving in the climate committee. Mark, um, you are, have such an experience in financing climate protection. So there is uh, billions and billions and billions on the capital markets. Why are they not getting active for what we have to do? Um, well, firstly, I also should add that, because Mara said to me, well, okay, you know, everyone calls for policymakers to act, you know, what do they do? Well, we talk to $80 trillion worth of investors and the principal's responsible investors. Let me tell you, that money is galvanized around this. I think there's a genuine feeling in the investment communities that uh, things need to happen, they need to look at supplying more capital. Importantly, they engage very heavily with the corporate sector to say, what are you doing about it? So the pressure is heavily on. The Climate Action 100, if you're very interested, is that's a, that's a, a platform that's really doing a lot on this. So there is a lot of activity coming from climate finance. There are, there are hundreds of billions flowing into uh, climate mitigation, but we need trillions, right? So again, it's all about the ratchet. I've got to ratchet my, my world up, as the but the policymakers can help us ratchet up. That's the problem, is that I go back to it, you know, money follows risk and return. So at the moment, they're just not in, you know, the oil companies say, I've got a 12% ROE. What do you got in renewables? Six. Sorry, I win. What they don't do is risk adjust that ROE, in my opinion. So we have to get into the world where they know that demand for oil is coming under pressure because in the internal combustion engines got a date used by date. And when I talked about performance standards, I talked about coal. But banning the internal combustion engine, which is really is government policies increasingly, we've got to bring that in earlier so these companies can, the auto companies can plan their cycles, capex cycles. So, again, one of the reasons why policy needs to act fast is to create business certainty. That's one of the big arguments that's used. Businesses are sitting there going, we think you're going to act. We actually aren't going to move until you act. I hear that all the time. Policy inertia, I'm an oil company, I'm a car company, I'm, I, they've got to do it to me, right? The investors are going, no, 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 it's coming, you should get on with it, so that's the dialogue. I think those trillions are available once we get that risk-return trade-off again pushed in the right direction. At the moment, it's going in the right direction. We can see that in the returns in financial markets. It's going our way. Uh, but again, policy can certainly help skew that in the right direction. So I think the money is, they always say, you know, you know investment is 20% of world GDP, global investment. I mean, the, the trillions we're talking about for this is really not a big part of that flow once it gets going. The money's there, it's creating the right environment. Thank you for that. And also, those of you, you know, hopefully you'll, you'll stay for the, for the course. We will, be, we will be having a presentation or a contribution from the European Investment Bank where we'll hear news about how, how the money will be constructed to be greener um, over time. Gentlemen, you wanted to say? Robert Brown, the Macarrison Society, a planet to live on, priceless. There are no magic energy trees. Um, just some quick figures, so um, daily household usage, electricity 10 kilowatts, gas 35 kilowatts, cars maybe 40 to 50 kilowatts per kind of household, very back of an envelope. Um, the UK to meet its 330 terawatts would probably use something like 4,000 square miles. If you then went on to replace gas and motor, you're looking at, at kind of 30,000 square miles. I mean, there is just not enough energy density in wind and solar to meet 
the needs of decarbonization? Why aren't we talking, being grown up and talking about fusion, thorium, nuclear, or if some other body else you know, has an alternative energy proposal that, because at the moment we're just hiding our heads. And I met a head of an oil consortium at the AGU last year who, who hosts all the oil companies, and he said, lack of leadership, and we're just nibbling at the edges of the problem. Thank you for that comment. Just um, one very quick comment. Yeah. Um, I was just reading about fusion. Maybe they get there by 2050. It's more likely 2080. There's a rather big overshoot mm. by then. So I'd love to believe in it, and it might be the answer for the 22nd century, whatever it is, but I don't think right now it's going to bail us out. Uh, you could really be asking, what about nuclear? Nobody likes that in Europe, but won't comment. There you go. Um, but the reality is, if you look at the, the modeling of renewable energy, it's not quite like that. We've got the uh, wind power at sea, there's vast quantities there. We've got the ability with solar to bring in solar out, concentrated solar out of uh, deserts and so on. So there's definitely a lot of modeling that suggests that we can do a lot of renewables. But, uh, you know, you don't agree, but a lot of people do, so it's a debate. Linda. And I want to add one more thing, because we shouldn't take the current demand as a starting point, because demand can also be reduced by all kinds of measures. So it can be technology efficiency, but also behavior change. Okay. Thank you. Um, let's move to the European Commission. Mauro. Um, the recent um, European elections provided, I suppose, the biggest boost of confidence for the project uh, in two decades in terms of turnout and also, I suppose, dealing a blow to the two-party stronghold in Europe. Um, we can see much more fragmentation, but the biggest issue, I thought, think, was that actually the rush of green power. It was very clear that, you know, in accordance with our poll, you could see that in the elections, there was a real desire for a greener Europe. Um, and you, that, that, you know, whether the, man, the new EU mandate will make most of that is a matter we'll see in politically. But from a commission official point of view, um, what are you going to be doing to put this agenda at the heart of policy making? Thanks, Amanda. Uh, let me start with your point on European elections. Yes, there's been a green wave, but let's not be simplistic of it because there are important consequences. Green parties have profited from that green wave only in Northwestern Europe. Now, it doesn't mean that there hasn't been a green wave elsewhere. And you've seen that in the way the mainstream parties have voted in July, when they were voting on the president-elect. But the consequence of that is that in many countries, people who vote green, people who want a cleaner environment, people who care about climate, also care about other things just as strongly. Mm. And our policy cannot be a policy of green at all costs. It has to be a policy that puts cleaning our environment, uh, cleaning our planet, eliminating emissions in the context of an economic and social policy that answers the overall request mm. of people. A policy of sacrifice for cleaning the planet will not carry the masses. A policy of cleaning our planet and ensuring prosperity will, and it is doing that. And the good news is that policy is actually possible. It is possible to do things which we haven't been able to do for a long time and use the opportunity of the climate energy and transformation to do that. So what have, we, what have we done and what are we going to do? I mean, I could give you the same answer, which is much has been done and more needs to be done. Uh, and that is a truism. If you look at what this commission has done, the outgoing commission, we have basically married energy security and uh, climate fight and mm. reduction of emissions. Something which had never been done before and it's now done in full. Our energy policy is going straight towards um, cleaning up our energy supply. It will take a while, but it will happen and it's happening. You know, banning coal, what's the difference between a ban and a phase out? coal will go in the early 2030s. Totally agree with you. It has to go and it will. Um, now, we'll do more, more mainstreaming, more research and innovation, more cohesion funds, bringing climate 
the climate transformation into social spending, we sp will spend increasing amount of money reskilling people. What do you reskill them towards? That is the issue. We're very good at finding out which activities we should abandon, which activities should we bring people into. And we shouldn't bring them into activity which will die because of the climate transformation. Um, agriculture, finally, I think greening the CAP is a bit of an oxymoron, but it remains a, a valid one. And there will be a lot more of that. Investment, the point that Mark was making, totally agree. Uh, it is happening, but we have to create the environment that encourages people to want to spend that money. Um, just to give you an example, adaptation and insurance. You, you have to socialize the cost of adaptation. Insurance policies are the way to do it. But it's an issue of data. Where are the data? How is the risk assessed? How do you devise policies that people can actually afford and companies can afford to pay for? Uh, so there is a huge need for, uh, for regulation, not to dictate uh, people what to do, but to enable them to do things they want to do. Um, and European Climate is a new initiative by the president-elect. We will bring in a number of strands that we have already started, work with the Covenant of Mayors, work with regional administration, uh, citizens' initiative, but we'll try to give it more structure, more order to collect the awareness that's growing and offer them platforms for expression, platform for ideas, uh, and hopefully things that help us understand where we should go. Um, just a couple of points in reaction to what Mark and Linda said. And Mark was pushing me, saying, oh, okay, uh, I want you to disagree with me. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I actually agree with you. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I, 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 there are days where I just can't be controversial. Uh, but do you agree with everything he said? No. Yes, no. very much. Wow, very much. okay. Very much. Look, <laughs> leaders are often jaded. Um, they react to people, uh, and people are pushing leaders in the right direction. Please, let's not make the mistake that because young voters passionately care about climate, and that's waking up politicians, these young voters will not grow older and will start caring not only about the end of the world, but the end of the month. If we don't give them that answer, these voters will shift, will stop voting for climate policies, if they see climate policies preventing them from earning a salary, putting up a family, having children, and feeding them, and educating them. And this is not inevitable. You know, it is the reverse of the point Mark was making. There are things which are inevitable, and we should hasten them. There are things that are not inevitable, and we should not be resigned to them. Um, so it is perfectly possible to create clean industry. It is perfectly possible to have zero carbon energy supply. Uh, it is perfectly possible to have clean mobility. I think we have plenty of analysis, plenty of studies that show that it is possible. They don't show that it will be done, but they show that it can be done. Now, it's up to us whether we do it or not. Uh, I think, you know, the Commission alone will not do miracles. We don't live in a Harry Potter's world, and even in the Harry Potter's world, magic wands have limitations. Uh, and we certainly don't even have one. Uh, but the union will do its part, accompanying and pushing member states in the right direction. And at the moment, look at the 2050 objective. What you read in the press, the number of member states oppose this objective is not true. There's no member state that disagrees with the objective. A few member states are asking the very pertinent question, this is an absolutely massive, unprecedented investment challenge. Who's going to help us? And you should ask the question to a number of member states who at the same time are advocating great ambition for climate and cutting budgets uh, to achieve that. That is a real question. Thank you. Mara, thank you as ever. Thought-provoking and controversial in, 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 in both parts. But um, I'm going to kind of, very, before I move to the private sector, I just want to get some quick-fire reactions to what you heard from Mara. If there are any particular um, whether you agree, because I, I, I was looking at you askance when you said that actually these young people are suddenly going to look at the end of the month also. And is our sociological analysis, our, our sense of understanding motivation completely different now, given, given that 
this emergency is so different to anything we've ever encountered in our lives. And it's because we're not getting a grip, grip about it, but when you see the, what's actually taking place in our conditions, can we really apply the same notion that actually people worry more about their monthly check once they get to the age of 21, 22, than the climate? I want to get some views from people in the audience. Don't be shy. Any comments? You don't have a view? Surely you do. Come on. Someone out there must. No? Ah, excellent. And we have got limited time. Um, Jean-Marie Notre-Dame, University of Ghent. Um, you said that it can be done. Can it be done on time? I mean, I'm also referring to the fact that uh, energy supply, maybe in Europe, can be decreased or uh, energy requirements can be decreased. But if you look at the overall world, by 2040, we need to install about 100 gigawatt a year. Can it be done? How? I think that's a real question. Europe can do it. On the other hand, and I don't know whether the rest of the world will do it, but start from the IPCC report. It tells you a climate-neutral world between 26 and 2080. It tells you developed countries have to do it earlier than that. We've chosen to be the first 2050. The question is, can we carry the rest of the crowd with us? My view, we will not be able to unless we give them a concrete, real-life example that it works, that it works not only for climate, but works for economic prosperity, and it works for developing countries. Now, we are working to convince them at least to watch what we are doing, and we are succeeding. If you see the long-term strategy Japan has produced, looks very much like ours, except it says, well, yes, zero, but not right away, maybe in early in the second half of the century. Then you ask them what that means, and they tell you, well, it could mean 2051. Okay, typical uh, Japanese prudence. But they go in that direction. China is creating the biggest carbon market in the world. Will it work? Well, we didn't know ours would work when we set it up. Uh, we are spending an enormous amount of time and resources helping the Chinese to make sure it works. And of course, they don't have only climate in mind. They have the energy efficiency of their industry in mind and their competitiveness. But if that market works and the moment is only limited to power generation, and it will be the biggest carbon market in the world, dwarfing ours. So people are following. I spend 60% of my time with industrialists. Many of them are Americans. American companies who operate outside the United States do not find uh, the current policies uh, useful to them or right. So it isn't happening elsewhere as fast as it's happening in Europe, and that is a real problem. But that's not a reason for despondency. Okay. But we have to give them an example. I can't, sorry, because I've, I've got such limited time, and I've got my our director of operations looking at me saying, you've got to finish really quickly. So, but I, I promise to take you, so please do say who you are. Is this on? Is this on? Yeah, yeah. Um, Katie Treadwell, WWF European Policy Office. Um, I just thought, speaking slightly personally, I'm 26 years old. After the age of 21, I still very much care about the climate because it is going to affect my future quality of life, and for people of my generation, it will affect their ability to have jobs. Um, there is the truth in what you say, however, that things need to be embedded in socioeconomic policies. My question, therefore, is what kind, how on earth do you keep people engaged, in your view? Is there, at the moment, we have very rigid consultation processes. Um, in terms of planning a just transition, we're constantly fighting against uh, lo big lobbies of industry stopping um, individuals and citizens actually um, engaging in the processes and keeping and making sure that their interests are heard in that socio-economic context as well as towards the climate. I'd just be interested in your view on that. What would, what would, what would you like to see happen from that perspective? <laughs> 
what would I like to see happen? Um, we have the European Code of Conduct um, yes. on partnership. Um, at the moment, we have many just transition, just transition is a buzzword, um, but at the, t at the same time, we have the Coal Commission in Germany, which did have dissenting voices, and yet it's presented as something which everyone agreed to, and therefore 2038 is the answer to coal phase-out in, in Germany. Um, how can we make sure I, that people are involved? I'm not entirely sure, but I think... Okay. Yeah. But you'd want something that's more consistent, engaging, and, and regular, I imagine, uh, in terms of problem solving. Before you answer, if I may, because I'd, I'd rather bring Valentino in, because there's kind of a, a linked issue here. Um, you know, you're a uh, private sector, our only one on the, on the panel in that, in that respect. And really interested to understand from you, what do you think you need in terms of context, if that is an issue, to achieve greater ambition? Okay, is it on? Okay, so the short answer would be uh, to do a lot more of the same things we're doing and a lot more new things. And I'll try to explain this briefly. So um, utilities like ours are engaged in what we call energy transition since I would say 15 years. Then it was a very uh, cautious movements, but today the vast majority of utilities, European ones and global ones, are engaged in the transition that is completely transforming the energy systems of our countries, European countries and global and, and world countries, uh, in a way that makes them sustainable, affordable and safe. So this is the purpose that we have at ANEL and the purpose that we share with most of the, uh, our, our peers in Europe and, and around the world. So that is something that is already on uh, and, and is going since, again, 15 years. And we're mobilizing huge amount of capitals to do this. Uh, the recipe for this, in our view, is quite easy to explain, but then there are challenges to, to achieve it. So the first thing is to decarbonize the power mix. It has been already mentioned uh, several times in the, in the panel. Uh, the second piece is to uh, make the consumption efficient, so to uh, decrease the overall need for energy in all fields. And the third one would be to electrify as much as possible our economies, because by electrifying, if we have decarbonized the power mix, the electric power mix, we decarbonize everything that we electrify, and at the same time, we make it more efficient, because intrinsically, the use of the electricity medium is more efficient. So these are the three pieces. Now, uh, coming to each one of them in a very short way. The first one is, I would say, the easy one, where we need to do a lot more of the same. And the good news is that uh, the deployment of renewables and other technologies which are complementary to renewables is driven, yes, by policy, but most importantly, around the world by technology improvements, which have already been mentioned. Technology costs have decreased in an impressive way over the last 10 years. Uh, market forces, because today, and I'm speaking just about renewables, renewables is, are the cheapest options to install new capacity. Uh, that is true especially in uh, developing countries. Uh, remember that we are emitting less than 10% of global CO2, so the, the challenge is to take the other areas on board. If you go around the world in developing countries, the vast majority of new capacity is renewables because it is more competitive more competitive and cheaper than conventional sources. So that is the good thing. We don't need policies there. We just need to continue doing what we're doing. Um, the third piece is consumer acceptance in general. Private consumers and companies. I would just want to make an example on, of how these three things, three forces are important, of course, versus policy, which is very important. US, today, uh, Mr. Trump is, has announced that he wants to withdraw uh, the United States from the Paris Agreement. We are, and not only us, I mean, the entire sector installing huge amount of renewable capacity in the US because it is cheaper and because companies want to buy for their green credentials and for their sustainability, green energy from us and from our peers. So that is a trend. It's not being reversed by the policy of Mr. Trump. It's increasing, it is increasing. And we see this happening around the world. So that is the first piece, the carbonizing and power mix. When it comes to the second efficiency, uh, a lot has been said around, around this, this conversation. It's, it's theoretically an easy piece because if you look at the relative cost of these measures, they are the best ones, meaning that it's a net positive uh, contribution. The cost is negative. So this should be the policies that will, uh, will, will be deployed the soonest and the fastest. 
problem is, again, policies. You don't uh, renew your apartment, you don't change your border, you don't change your stove, if you don't have the proper, not financial incentives, but the proper policy incentives. And if you, as a consumer, don't have the knowledge and the, let's say, um, the information to understand that this is feasible and makes sense also economically for you, besides helping the environment. So this is, I would say, it's a, it's a piece where we need policies. The third piece of electrification is the most complex, meaning it is easy in certain aspects. It's easy to electrify the vast majority of transport. It might be very complex to electrify certain hard to bait sectors, uh, chemicals, steel, cement, etc. So technology push there, funds to develop technology is really uh, paramount. So coming to the conclusion, I see this is pretty much what needs to be done more. In terms of new things, I see new things from uh, the side of governments, uh, the private sector, industrial sectors like us, and consumers. From governments, I would say two, two things. We leadership, because if we can show the way to the others, if our governments can show the way, I'm sure uh, others will follow, and there is a way. And I would say to foster a just transition, we need to take along uh, countries and parts of the society that are starting from behind. So we need to support them. It's perfectly reasonable, it makes sense. Otherwise, it will be too costly for them and they will not be on board. Uh, from companies, uh, two things, again, realizing that this is an incredible industrial opportunity. Mm. There are vast markets, Africa, Asia, Latin America, which need these technologies and we have the technologies. It's an incredible opportunity for us. Two, coming to finance, also, sustainability is a good business. We have recently, it, we, we, we're proving this, we have recently emitted an SDG bond, which has been priced 10 bips below the normal rate because we are sustainable, because we are promising to deliver a certain amount of renewables in our mix. So it makes financial sense. And on the consumer side, we need, of course, to support them in changing their behaviors because this is something that's so important and we'll need to, uh, to basically um, revolve around all the aspects of our life. Thank you for that. Um, on that last point, I think it's interesting that um, as a provider in the private sector, um, how do you kind of balance the need for your profit and take a just approach to your consumers? Because there are some consumers who simply cannot afford the adaptation and the change. Um, and also this thing about um, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned um, the Commission's uh, new, uh, emerging policy on industrial, you know, I I industry. And actually, isn't that one place where you want it to be totally fundamentally green? Yes, uh, as I said, it's, it's an industrial opportunity for companies and for Europe because we do have technology, so the Commission's yes, uh, work on the, on the industrial policy is very, very welcome, so it goes in that direction. Of course, we need to make sure that these technologies will, uh, one, strengthen our value chains and not will be taken away by other, other areas. Uh, we know very well that, in, for example, in solar panels production, China's taken the lead, even though the technology was originated in Europe, in Germany. So we need to avoid doing the same on other uh, value chains like uh, innovative uh, storage, for example, electric vehicles, etc. So it's, it's very welcome. Coming to consumers. It's really, uh, there is a misunderstanding of end times. Yes, overall the transition will cost, but there are certain pieces of the transition which are cheaper. For example, when it comes to energy, energy prices are going down because of renewables. So, strictly speaking about electricity, let's say electricity in your, in your home, electricity prices are going down because renewables are way cheaper. Okay, thank you, thank you for that. But I'm still struck by the fact that, you know, any of you that live in Brussels, um, if you wanted to go green domestically, I wonder where you'd go in terms of both being able to access the technology or the goods um, or the advice to say, actually, I want to live more sustainably in my flat or apartment. And then you look outside your window and you look at the refuse collection process and you think, my goodness, it's mind-boggling that you, you can't, when a municipality yeah, doesn't actually think through its green credentials, even on refuse collection, you just think, my, you know, how can we uh, move in the right direction? I've got very limited time. Is there anyone desperate to, for, to, to uh, pose a question? Otherwise, I'm going to ask the panel just for some concluding remarks before we have a, take a break on to the next session. Anyone desperate out there? No. Ah. You are desperate. Okay, will you make, keep it short? Thank you. Say who you are. 
Hello. Yep. Yeah. Hi, Killian Totterdahl from Fleischmann Hillard. Um, out with the old, in with the bold. I think the boldest proposal on the table right now is a revisiting of the 2030 targets mm. and what that would entail. Um, personally, I think a higher 2030 target in the abstract is probably a good idea. A, a, the political process to get us there may be very, very challenging. So just maybe some quick reactions on, on that sure. topic. Thank you. Sure. Quick and reaction to And respond one. to the other points that were referred to. Let me give you a try. Uh, look, six months ago, we were saying we don't need higher ambition in 2030. We are on an ascending curve of ambition, and we are. And you can do policy that way. So it's a political choice. It's not an economic, it's mm -hmm. not a technical choice. Uh, from where we are to where we want to be in 2050, different trajectories. And they can all be made to work. That I, am, I'm, I can assure you. A flatter trajectory, higher ambition in 2030, means a bigger investment effort in the next five years. Five, ten. That's, so it's, it is a matter of money. It's a matter of money. It's a matter, so the real political question will not be, or oh, can we, we do it? Is it a good idea? The real question is going to be, where does the money for investment in new technology, in deploying new technology which exists, we're not looking for miracle solutions, you can expect a miracle solution, a miracle breakthrough in the next 30 years, and then we'll pocket the results. No, we're not planning on that. We're not banking on that. But where does the investment money come in? Where does the money come in for the just transition? Where does our ability to adapt faster, to faster dislocation of workers from one sector to the others? That's, that, those are the real questions which have been debated. And I can assure you, forget what you read in the press about uh, member states being for or against. That is the conversation taking place in the Council, and that is the conversation that needs to take place. Uh, the Parliament is beyond that. The Parliament has had that conversation and given an answer. Um, so, for once, uh, we have one set of conversations to have, and not two parallel ones and sometimes diverging. Um, we'll see. But we have to know what we are doing. Our economic analysis are obsolete, two to four years old. You can't make policy on that basis. And the president-elect has promised to do it. He's promised to do it in a responsible way. And she's promised to do it after solid impact assessment to decide how we do it in a responsible way. So it will, it will, it will get done. Then we'll see what happens uh, with our co-legislators, whether they agree with us or not. I want to come back to the question of the both just transition and public consultation. Just transition, look for the money available. Let people fill their mouth with it. You, when you have a good idea, there's always plenty of people paying lip service. Fine. Let's concentrate on those who mean it. And there's plenty of those. And let's look at how much money there is, and let's look at how many instruments there are. I go back to the example I made earlier, the social fund. Social fund is meant to finance a blueprint for skills. What skills? The justness of the transition is also in caring about how sustainable in all senses of the world those jobs are. Because moving to jobs which, you know, moving to an automotive plant that makes combustion plants, well, many of those workers will be out of a job before the end of their career. Because it will happen. Uh, okay. Let's look the public consultation bit it's all very well to look at the way we do structure public consultation. It's essential for us because it's very difficult for us to make sense and to use you know, public opinion which is unstructured. A structured public consultation are too comfortable for us. We do need a degree of discomfort. So we're trying to experiment with the European Climate Pact, and I don't know whether it will come out that way, but that's what we are thinking at the moment, to create platforms which gives the minimum of structure to what people will say, that we can understand it, we can use it, we can bring it into policy making, but will not force and constrain the way people express themselves, because otherwise that makes us uh, way too comfortable and sometimes complacent. That's good to hear an official say you want to be made uncomfortable by the public. It's a really good, good, good news story. But one, one issue I would say is that if you think about the economic impact of 
climate change just this year for insurance municipalities, right? I mean, significant. We're not talking about millions, hundreds of millions of pounds. So there's a kind of a cost-benefit analysis that could be made very clearly in terms of how you invest to save into the future. But we'll come back to that later in the session. Do you, do you want to very really quick. short? Yeah, very quickly, just want to say that I thought the panel was very consistent indeed. We didn't rehearse. Um, but I'd like to pick up a, a couple of points. Firstly, the just transition in our work we assume that has to be part of it because it's not going to happen. So the just transition is the, is the really big aspect that even financial markets are thinking about now. I'd just like to say about cost, um, at a global level it never seems very large. It's 0.1% of GDP per annum, right, which is less than the statistical error of the GDP accounts. But it's distributional issue, just like the just transition. Some are bigger losers, some are gainers, and therefore it's this distributional at, uh, aspect that Mara has talked about that is the key for the policymakers. But the actual cost globally is really just a noise. Mm. Um, and then finally, on the emerging markets, obviously that's where the increased demand for energy, etc., comes. I agree, Europe to me is the leader to show how this might happen. But let's face it, if the Chinese want to do it, they can do it a lot faster and a lot more efficiently. I shouldn't say efficiently. They can just impose the performance standards on their economy. That's what they do. So China, it's the big question. What do they do with that 1,000 gigawatt power, a coal-powered fleet? Are they going to actually, in their case, ban new coal from 2025, as we're hoping, start to retire, phase out the fleet, and replace it? They have the ability to do it. The question is, will they do it? India. They're already walking away from coal. It's because it's, it's cheaper to do renewables. So mm. I think the good, and, the, and these guys are going to leapfrog our technologies. Indeed. They're going to adopt mm. uh, uh, EVs. They don't need to take old technology on board. So I think that it's a, actually, funnily enough, the emerging markets may have a better chance of doing this than the historic incumbent-driven US and EU, where indeed, I will finish on this, we, you know, don't underestimate the incumbents. They're powerful, they're well-funded, and they're politically active. Thank you for that. Very briefly. Yeah, uh, yeah. four very brief points. First, uh, there was a discussion, uh, can demand reduction happen while the uh, global mm -hmm. south is still increasing energy use? And there are several scenarios included in IPCC assessments that demonstrate this is, in theory, possible. It would, even if their energy use in the global south would uh, increase, it would involve major changes like uh, hardly any meat consumption anymore, living in smaller houses, but techno technically or theoretically it is feasible. The second point is it's a matter of which trade-offs we want to make. And I think this is something that we should inform all actors and including the public about. Because if we only focus on mitigation options, people might say, oh, I don't want it. But they also don't want uh, major climate change happening. They also don't want uh, <laughs> negative emission technologies being Im implemented. So make clear there's a trade-off to make and then public support for some mitigation actions might increase. Second point was that third point. Uh, there, in the IPCC reports, there's also assessment being made about the implications of mitigation options for sustainable development goals. And it's very interestingly that many options have positive consequences for the sustainable development goals. So it's not only bad things, and that has been emphasized with many uh, times in these discussions, engaging in mitigation behavior or adopting mitigation options might have many beneficial effects as well, co-benefits. And lastly, going into what you were saying, and it's quite interesting that uh, in even though climate skeptic leaders might be in power, it doesn't mean that nothing has happened in the country anymore, and the opposite, it might accelerate change. That's actually what we also found at the consumer level. So we did some research around the, uh, the, yeah, around the elections of Trump, and what we see that the, the Trump supporters become a little bit more climate skeptics, less likely to engage in mitigation behaviors, but there's also a large group that don't like him that much. And there the opposite happens. They become to believe more strongly that climate change is happening and engaging more in mitigation actions. So again, demonstrating that it might okay. not only be a bad thing. Okay, thank you. Uh, just a quick comment mm. on, on developing countries. And uh, we agree that 
is where the, the, the vastest or the largest opportunities lie, also because new technologies, and I'm referring again to renewables and decarbonation of the power mix, uh, are the, the best option. Don't forget Africa, because Africa, Indeed. Africa's demand and African countries' demand will, will explode over the next years. It is just facing us. We have a lot of policies to cooperate and support Africa. The fact is that they are very fragmented and widespread. We should make them more <coughs> consistent and more, let's say, strong to support the leapfrogging on Africa from existing technologies to new technologies that will be, let's say, carbon-free and sustainable. And this is perfectly possible. It's also an incredible opportunity for the, for the European industry. So we Indeed. should really stress that. No, absolutely. I mean, you, I'm glad you mentioned Africa in that sense that um, it's a, one, of the most, one of the biggest markets that will emerge in the next 10 years. And it will be a failed opportunity if Europe doesn't see that in terms of both its value base, but also the opportunity to create new markets for industry in, in Europe. Colleagues, thank you very much. Thank you all. Let's thank our speakers in the usual manner. As ever, we're slightly over time. We have a coffee break now. Rather than have half an hour, you've got 20 minutes. Come back here at 11, where we'll talk about energy transition, just transition, and competitiveness. Thank you very much.